Would you take out your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 25 here in just a moment. Acts chapter 2 is where we will be. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for making the choice to be here tonight. You could have chosen to be any number of places, but you chose to be here, and I believe that was a good decision. I want to thank Jerry for leading us uh, in those songs. They go so well with the lesson tonight, and David for leading us in that prayer. And I begin with a question. I'm curious to know how many in the audience know the answer to this question. What book of the Old Testament is quoted more than any other in the New Testament? What book of the Old Testament is quoted more than any other in the New Testament? I'll give you a hint. It is also the book that Jesus quoted the most uh, in the Gospels, the book that Jesus quoted the most in the Gospels. Raise your hand if you think you know the answer to this question. All right, got quite a few hands up. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, this is one of those things that just doesn't stick uh, or hasn't stuck thus far in my mind. And so the dozen or so times that I've read this, every time it was like, oh, yeah, that's cool, which in some ways is nice. It's like a new surprise every time. The book that is quoted the most in the New Testament from the Old Testament is the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the book that is quoted the most. Somebody went like this. Well, now you know. Now you know what the answer to the question is. Um, And that's interesting, isn't it? Tim Keller, perhaps others said this, but I saw him say it for the first time, called the Psalms the songs of Jesus, the songs of Jesus. And I love that. They are that because, first of all, They were the divinely inspired hymn book for the public worship under the old law. And we can imagine Jews throughout the centuries. We can imagine Jesus singing the Psalms of Ascent going up to Jerusalem to worship with His family and later with His disciples. Even more, as these diverse Psalms were brought together in one book, what we know as the book of Psalms, well before the first century, This book began to be used for private worship and prayer as much as it was used for public worship. These were songs that were sung in families. These were songs that were sung at synagogue. And they would be the songs that Jesus himself grew up reading, reciting, and singing both publicly and privately, along with every other devout, practicing Jew in the first century. Every good Jew at that time would have known many of the Psalms, maybe most of the Psalms by heart, as much as we know songs like, Jesus loves me. Do you know Jesus loves me by heart? Or Amazing Grace, or Joy to the World. They would have known many of their favorite Psalms the same way we know our favorite songs. And it makes sense from that perspective that these Psalms, these scriptures, would be quoted by the New Testament writers for several reasons, not least of which is they were so well known. Few people among the Jews would have had to have gone and looked this up for themselves. Let me see if that's really what it says because they already know what it says. They already have it memorized. They've sung it since they were children. They knew it from memory. And so these are the songs of Jesus in that sense because This would have been Jesus' songbook when he was here on earth. But taking that idea of the songs of Jesus a step further, these aren't just the songs sung by Jesus, they are the songs that are all about Jesus. Overt prophecies like Psalm 22 certainly fall in that category, but so many more that just point us toward Jesus, our mediator, 
our Savior who can redeem us from our sins. We think about Psalms that talk about a priesthood greater than Aaron, maybe after the order of Melchizedek, who can offer a lasting sacrifice for sins. The Hebrew writer quotes from Psalm 110 in order to show that about Jesus. Maybe we think about a greater king than David who would conquer sin and death. And so many of the Psalms written by David himself look forward to his descendant who would be an even greater king than he was. And in Acts chapter 2, we see that Peter quotes from Psalm 16 in order to show that. So, if you're there in Acts chapter 2, begin reading with me in verse 25, if you would. Uh, Peter has said, this is, these things that you see with the Holy Spirit falling upon us and the things that we say and do, these things are a fulfillment of prophecy from the prophet Joel, But all of this is pointing to the Messiah. And so he quotes from Psalm 16, beginning in verse 25. For David says concerning him, this Messiah, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now this is a quotation of Psalm 16 from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was freely available to many in the first century. And primarily, it is from that translation that that our New Testament uh, authors quote. But here is the application Peter makes from this psalm. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would rise He would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. That his soul, Christ's soul, was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now at first glance that might seem like an odd application of that Psalm 16, but, but there are some things in common in regard to interpretation that Peter would have had with his Jewish audience. They would have believed that David actually wrote these words. They would have both believed that David was inspired of the Holy Spirit when he wrote them, that as a prophet he was able to speak things beyond his own knowledge as it was revealed to him by God. And they would have all agreed on this occasion that David spoke of things that didn't just apply to him, but applied to the coming Messiah. And so when Peter quotes Psalm 16 and says, look, David is not just talking about himself in some way. He is looking forward to the Messiah, and Jesus has done just what was prophesied. It was a convincing and compelling argument to those who heard it. David wasn't talking about just himself. And Peter says, his tomb is with us here to this day. Instead, he was talking about Jesus. And what a powerful contrast that would have been. There's David's tomb over there, and if we broke down the door, we would find his bones inside. There is Jesus' 
tomb over there, the stone is rolled away, and if we look inside, there are no bones to be found, no body to be found. And if you stop and think about it, that's all the opponents of Christianity really had to do. They had to produce the dead body of Jesus, but they couldn't. And Scripture foretold this. But may I suggest that what made this quotation so powerful to them is that they knew the psalm from which it was quoted. They knew that psalm like we know Amazing Grace or some other beloved hymn. And that's where I would like to turn our attention tonight. Will you turn with me to Psalm 16? Maybe if we know Psalm 16 a little better, maybe if we know it more like they knew it, this application that is made by Peter in Acts chapter 2 will become even more powerful to us just as it was powerful to them. So, marking your spot in Acts chapter 2. We'll come back to that right at the end of the lesson. We're going to spend practically the rest of our time in Psalm 16. If you want to turn over there, Psalm 16. And what we're going to see is that there are two parts to this psalm. I almost went without a PowerPoint tonight because... The points are so clear and so straightforward, I just couldn't do it. So I'm going to put the two points up on the board. Number one, David takes refuge in God instead of idols in verses 1 through 6. That's the first point of Psalm 16. This is where David places his trust. This is where he goes for refuge. And he contrasts that with idols in verses 1 through 6. Now the section from which Peter quotes is in the second half of the psalm. And in the second half of the psalm, this is the second point that we see from Psalm 16. God will not fail him. And then our application that we're going to talk about is just as Christ did not fail. Uh, and then we'll come back to Acts chapter 2. So those are our two points this evening. You knew I had it in me, a two-point sermon. Here it is. And I think if we can see these two points as David powerfully makes them, we're going to turn back to Acts chapter 2 and hopefully the application there will be more powerful for us as well. So number one, David takes refuge in God instead of idols. Read verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 16 with me, please. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another, another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, You are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. You uphold it, maybe your translation says. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. So David makes this contrast between the blessings and trust that he places in God versus idolatry. And I'll be honest, as a preacher in the 21st century, especially in America, modern application to idolatry, at least in our culture, is always a little tricky. I acknowledge that we do not nor do the vast majority of people in our country worship literal gods or images of gods granting beauty or power or pleasure or entertainment or work or wisdom or wealth, seeking those things from these kinds of idols. 
But we all live for something, ladies and gentlemen. And if we live for any of those things more than we live for God, then we have fallen into idolatry. Not falling down and worshiping an image, but placing something before God. Let me read that list that I just went over really quickly. Let me read them again. All of these things that I'm about to list had a patron God in multiple pagan cultures. So they have gods, and if you pray to this God, worship to this God, sacrifice to this God, then you're going to be granted, that's the idea, these things. Beauty, power, pleasure, entertainment, work, wisdom, or wealth. Have things really changed that much? Here it talks about them hastening after another God in verse 4. People hasten after all those same things today and more. They sacrifice on those altars as much as any idol. They are the things that people have to have by any means necessary. And the ironic thing is it increases their suffering when those things are taken away from them. That's what it says of these ones here in our text that their suffering is increased because those things will be taken from them or never even attained in the first place despite what the promises are from the world. Instead, for those of us who love God and place our trust in Him, we make the Lord our portion, David says. That's the source of our real wealth, right? The portion that we receive, the things that we have. We make the Lord our cup. Well, that's the source of real pleasure, right? The cup and the things contained in it are are often associated with enjoyment and pleasure in the Old Testament and in other ancient cultures. We make the Lord the one who upholds us, David says. Well, that's the source of our real power, right? God is the one who is upholding us and putting us in the position where we are. We make the Lord the one who draws our lines, he says, the lines of our boundaries. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, he says. Uh, God is the one who's supposed to draw the lines of our boundaries as well. He's the source of our real wisdom saying, stay within these boundaries. This is where it's pleasant. This is where it's good for you. And my commands are for your good always. And all of the other things that we will inherit Yes, I have a good inheritance both now and eternally if I rely on the Lord. Jesus summarized the choice made by David well um, in Matthew chapter 6. Mark your spot, uh, Psalm 16. Actually, this is the only other passage besides uh, Acts 2 and Psalm 16 to which we will turn. But I want you to turn for just a second to Matthew chapter 6. Among the Jews of the first century, idolatry in the traditional sense was not an issue. Um, In that, we have something in common, right? In our culture, it was not the idea of falling down and worshiping an idol. Now, in the Old Testament, that was a huge problem, but we really don't see much, if any, sort of idolatry like that once they returned from captivity. Apparently, the trauma of the captivity was enough to break them of that sin, if not all others. 
And so when Jesus here describes what he describes, we might well call it idolatry, but it is much closer to what we experience today than what we think about among pagan cultures. Jesus says, verse 19, again, this is a good summation of what David says is the choice of all of us in Psalm 16. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then in verse 22, he's going to keep talking about our heart, but he now calls it our eye. So when you read eye, think heart. The lamp of the body is the eye, your heart. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And so the question is, what are you looking at with your heart with desire? To say, I want that, that's what I'm storing up. Is it treasure on earth or treasure in heaven? And so verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon. Maybe your translation says you can't serve God in riches, and that's true. But it seems as though Jesus is personifying money here as an idol, this idea of mammon. And he says money is an idol for people, even if they aren't falling down and worshiping it as if it's some image. And so too for us, we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to fall into that kind of idolatry. Those are the choices. What will I choose? Even in Psalm 16, it is still a choice, right? Uh, Notice there in verse 7, at the beginning of verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. David talks about the counsel of the Lord, not the coercion of the Lord. The Lord doesn't make you do this. He gives you a choice. What will I choose? Idols, which always fail and fall and disappoint, or God who never fails, who never falls, who never disappoints. Idols who give us the best we'll ever have right now. I mean, enjoy it while you can, because that's all you get. Or God, who often grants us better things now, but promises us that the best is yet to come. Um, and so we see that David makes, takes refuge in God instead of idols. But this best that is yet to come is seen in the second half of this psalm. Read with me in verses 7 through the end of the psalm. David says, I trust in God and God's not going to fail me. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons because it's been trained by God. Now, I want you in the back of your mind to say, okay, I'm remembering now that Peter's quotation in Acts chapter 2 is about to start. Okay, let's keep reading verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest or dwell securely in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol or Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
God will not fail him. And if we placed our hope in God, then our treasure can't be lost like physical things. It can only increase as we grow closer and closer to our Lord and closer and closer to heaven. I love the image that comes up a couple of times in these verses. Look specifically there in verse 8. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I love that image of the Lord being at our right hand. And there are lots of things that are helpful in that image for us. Lots of areas where we can think of, okay, what do I put at my right hand? Think about that for just a second. What do you put at your right hand? Well, I think I'm driving in the car, and Stephanie in this journey is on my right hand. A lot of times we hold hands while we're driving in the car, so that's at my right hand. Supplied by the PowerPoint, a lot of times what happens when I think about my girls and they're reaching up to hold my right hand, I'm at their right hand, right? And I'm walking with them and I'm directing them and I'm protecting them, that sort of image. Uh, maybe you think about our right-hand man. We talk about that sometimes, right? That's that friend that we can count on, the one that is right beside us in every project, the one who is always there in times of suffering or sorrow. It is the one who's always picking us up when we fall. They are at our right hand. Um, I, love, I love the way Kidner speaks of this uh, in his commentary on the Psalms. In Psalm 16, he says, God is not one to give up on his friends. God's always there. If we keep him at our right hand, that's where he desires to be. Now, in their culture in the first century, uh, excuse me, uh, when David wrote these things a thousand years or so before Christ, in that culture it carried these images probably, but also a number of others that we can apply to Christ. Think of three with me from the ancient world. If you had someone at your right hand, and this would be true today as well, it is an advocate in court. Somebody who's at your right hand speaking on your behalf. We think about like a lawyer in court at your right hand. Number two, they would have thought about battles. And you wanted someone on your right hand who was a supporter of you in a battle. Uh, and we see that image throughout the Old Testament, right? The strong right hand. This is someone who is at our side in the midst of a battle. And then number three, someone at your right hand, it was dangerous and difficult to travel alone in the ancient world, and so you wanted someone beside you, a partner, a companion who was on the journey with you. So an advocate in court, a supporter in battle, a companion on a journey. All three of those apply to Jesus and our relationship with Him. He is our advocate with the Father. It is because of His sacrifice that we can truly be forgiven. He is our representative in heaven making intercession for us. And He is the one who will stand beside us in judgment in that sentencing saying, this one is with me. And if He is at our right hand, then we know that we're going to be found not guilty. Jesus is our supporter in a battle. In a battle, honestly, that we cannot win on our own. The battle against sin and death and Satan. And Christ is the way that we will win if He is at our right hand. In fact, if He's at our right hand, the only way we can lose is if we give up. And if we, if we stray from having Him beside us. Jesus is our companion on our journey. 
He is with us every step of the way. He has gone before us and shown us the way, and He has cleared the way for us to follow. Jesus is at our right hand. That's the image. Uh, But if I may be so bold, Jesus must be at our right hand for those things to be true. I fear too often that we have other things at our right hand. I was preparing for this lesson, and I was thinking about, you know, my hand, my right hand holding all of these different things, and I realized, you know the thing that is in my right hand the most? This right here. Uh, All sorts of statistics I could cite to you right now, but we don't need that. We know the truth of that, don't we? Is Jesus closer at my right hand than, than this? He has to be or this, and whatever is contained therein, becomes an idol to us, right? Jesus has to be at our right hand. What does that look like? It means that as we go throughout our day, Jesus has to be that close, right there, all the time. Didn't mean to scare you, sorry. But it is a little scary. It's scary facing this world without Him with us. It is scary going through trials and temptations when He is not there to guide us and support us and be our advocate at those times. Jesus should be in my mind and heart and life more than anything or anyone else. I should be meditating on His Word. I should be praying, seeking help, giving praise, making petitions to God the Father in His name. I should be repenting and finding forgiveness through His blood, Jesus should always be at my right hand. And if He is, if He is at our right hand, then the best is yet to come because our reunion with Him in our resurrected bodies is that close. How many times does, do the New Testament authors talk about the Lord being at hand in regard to His coming? And it is at that coming that we can and will have endless joy if He is at our right hand now. You know, I think about whenever I read passages like this. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence of fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I can't help but think of those who have passed on in Christ, and a smile comes to my face, joy fills my heart when I read passages like this. But I am reminded today of one person in particular from this particular passage. Uh, In 2012, it was a long time ago now, uh, Tony Mock came and held a meeting with us. Many of you knew Tony. For those of, you, those of you who didn't, he was a faithful preacher. He recently passed away. Uh, the meeting uh, that he held in 22 was very good. Some great lessons. I got a lot out of it. Uh, but that was 11 years ago. Uh, and to be honest, there are really only two things that I remember clearly from that meeting. 11 years later. One is private, and I'll just keep that between he and I. The other is that at one point in that meeting, he referenced this portion of Psalm 16. And he said, this is my favorite passage. Full stop. Now that's particularly bold. And 
preachers, we make bold claims all the time, but I'll admit, usually if I'm going to make a bold claim like that, I have some provisos to it. This is my favorite psalm. This is my favorite passage written by Paul. This is my favorite parable. He went so far as to say, this is my favorite passage. In fact, that made such an impression on me that I wrote it right here in my, past, my Bible, Tony Mock's favorite passage. It must be pretty good if this is somebody's favorite passage in the entire Bible. And written on the other side in the same pen, so I assume it was coming from him. If not, you can just give me the credit. Everyone wants a good and pleasurable life full of joy. Is that true? Can I hear your heads rattle on that? Yeah. But so many are looking in the wrong place. So many have chosen the refuge of idols instead of the refuge of the living God. In the hands of idols, at the right hand of idols, instead of at the right hand of God, you cannot find this joy and peace and life that is promised in this passage. Shortly before Tony's death, a mutual friend of ours sent me a picture of he and Tony, and Tony was almost unrecognizable. His physical body had betrayed him. But he had this hope in his favorite passage, as do all who put their faith and confidence in and seek refuge with the Lord. And what is the proof of all of this? The proof that the path of life is shown by God. That in His presence is fullness of joy and in His right hand are pleasures forevermore. The ultimate fulfillment of this passage is Jesus Christ. Because He rose from the dead, we can look forward in hope to the resurrection. That God really does have the power to do all of this because He proved it in raising Jesus from the dead. And people have all sorts of explanations for Psalm 16 and what David meant and did David understand those sorts of things. I like what Craigie says in his commentary. While the psalmist, while with the psalmist we may seek deliverance from an untimely death and may rise confidently above that danger, eventually a timely death will come as it does to all mankind. Yet there is a new ground for confidence for all mankind, for the untimely death of Jesus was consummated in His resurrection. And it is because of Jesus' resurrection, because He was not left in Hades or Sheol, that we can have confidence and hope for our own resurrection. That we can have confidence for our own salvation and all of the promises that come from God. So here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to turn back to Acts chapter 2 as we bring our lesson to a close. We read from verses 25 through 32. And again, those people there, they would, have, they would have known this like we know Jesus loves me, perhaps. They would have known this psalm and they would have known everything that's found in verses 1 through 7 before Peter starts quoting. They would have understood David and what he's saying here in this passage and they would have been convinced, apparently 3,000 of them at least were convinced by the argument that Peter makes from that psalm. But let's keep reading in verse 32. This Jesus 
God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. You see David's tomb full of David. You see Jesus' tomb full of nothing. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. It is clear that David often spoke of another who would be his Lord, who would be exalted by God himself, the Messiah, the promised King, who is found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. That's us. We're the afar off ones. As many as the Lord our God will call. I want you to just imagine for a moment the relief that they must have felt when they hear Peter say, it's not too late. You haven't missed out. There is still hope. The fullness of joy and path of life and pleasures forevermore are still within reach because of Christ and His promises. And if they hadn't missed out, those who crucified Jesus, those who shouted, crucify Him, crucify Him, those who ignored the things that He did in favor of those in power, if they didn't miss out, Surely we haven't missed out either. Not yet. If you will take the counsel of the Lord and submit yourself to Jesus in baptism, you can have the hope of a resurrection on the judgment day and eternal life in the presence of God. A hope that stands before every Christian, not just because of what David said in Psalm 16, but because of what Jesus did to fulfill those words bring them to their full completion and make them applicable to every single one of us who wear His name. If we can help you with that even this evening, come now while together we stand and while we sing. There's a mountain free.